Welcome to Allobe Radio, where we support you in your business and life. Listen in each week for episodes on how to grow your business, tips from successful business owners, answers to your burning business questions, and much more. We will also have five-minute What's the Buzz with Brooke episodes where you can get up to date on the most recent tech, trends, and tools for your business. Join our Allobe Hive and we will help you and your business grow. I'm your host, Brooke Markovicius, founder and CEO of an agile end-to-end business solution for solo entrepreneurs, micro-businesses, small businesses, and startups. My company is called Allobe. We are your one-stop shop for support, visibility, and growth for your business. I took my years of freelance startup and brick and mortar experience and merged it with my technical background and skills to create Allobe. I'm a mom of two kids, a kindergartner, and a toddler. I live in the sunny South in North Carolina. I'm married to my soulmate. I'm a total book nerd, tech geek, and have built multiple businesses while raising babies. My hope is that this podcast will bring you actionable tips, tricks, and tools to help you gain momentum in your business and life. Let's get into the buzz of the week. Are you overwhelmed and running out of time? Do you need to hire somebody, but you're not so sure who is good and qualified? No worries. Take a deep breath. We've got you covered. At Allobe, we are your one-stop shop for all your business needs. We can support you in everything from podcast editing, technical assistance, virtual assistance, web design, branding, social media management, consulting, bookkeeping, and much more. We handle all of the vetting and onboarding of our experts, and we make sure that you're going to get somebody that is extremely qualified for the job. If you're not satisfied with who we place you with, we have a 100% anytime rematch guarantee to make sure that you get somebody that you love working with. We also can support you in multiple different projects and handle it under all one umbrella to take some of that stress off of you. We're here to support you at Allobe. Just head over to www.allobe.com and we can help support you through a call or you can book a call directly on our site. You can click the lower right-hand corner of your screen and support chat will talk to you and answer any of your questions. Or you can go ahead and pay through the site and get set up with someone today. We hope to support you in growing your business at Allobe.com. Welcome back to Allobe Radio. Today, we are talking to Stephanie Mehta, and she is the editor-in-chief of Fast Company. And I actually recorded this interview back in the spring, um, and we were supposed to be back up and running with our podcast sooner, but everything coronavirus. And so I wanted to bring this episode to this new viewing or listening to Allobe Radio because Stephanie is amazing. And it's not every day you get to interview the editor-in-chief of one of the top magazines in the world. And so Stephanie, like I mentioned, is the editor-in-chief of Fast Company. She oversees its print, digital, and live journalism. She previously served as a deputy editor at Vanity Fair, where she edited feature stories and co-edited the annual New Establishment Ranking. Actually, as I'm recording this intro, this week I am actually speaking 
and running a networking um, session at Fast Company um, for their innovation summit, which is going on right now. And it's just fabulous. So Stephanie is behind all of that. She also curated the invitation only new establishment summit and founders fair conference for women entrepreneurs, which she launched in 2017. The women's conference was profitable in its first year. In 2016, she was editor of Bloomberg Live, Bloomberg Media's global conference division. In that role, she also served as part of the company's editorial steering committee consisting of Bloomberg's top 12 editors. She spent 14 years as a writer and editor at Fortune, which we will talk about a little bit in this episode, which is really cool to hear about her whole experience from Fortune to Bloomberg to Vanity Fair and then to Fast Company. But rising to the number two position on the title's masthead at Fortune. At Fortune, she directed the magazine's technology management, Washington and international coverage, and help set its overall editorial direction. She spent six years as an editor and writer at the Wall Street Journal. Meza began her career as a business reporter at the Virginian Pilot in Norfolk, Virginia. She received a BA in English and an MS in journalism from Northwestern University. A Chicago area native, which we love Chicago. My husband's family is um, from that area once they moved over from um, Europe. And she now lives with her husband and two daughters in Scarsdale, New York. We talk about everything from being a busy working mom to really everything that it took to get, you know, her career advanced to where it is. And it's just a really great episode. Stephanie is really down to earth and just a wonderful person to talk to. And I'm so glad that I now know her. So let's dive into this episode with the editor-in-chief of Fast Company. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for being here today. I'm so excited to interview you. I have um, been reading Fast Company for years, uh, and so it's really fun to be able to interview um, someone that is so prominent at Fast Company and also who has been in the industry for a long time. Um, so I want to talk a little bit first about how was your transition into Fast Company? I know that there had been um, a, a male editor there that was there for about 11 years, so a long time before that. So how was it going into this culture, into this new place um, as a female, um, but also um, as a new person after someone being there for a long time? Yeah, it was... Um... It, it was only two years ago, but it feels like an eternity ago in many ways. And not just because uh, we're living in such an unusual set of circumstances right now. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. Um, I'm a real fan of what you guys do as well. And I believe there's probably some real overlap between our readers and your listeners. So delighted to be part of this. For me, I was very fortunate in that Fast Company, under my predecessor, had already become a pretty inclusive place. There were a lot of senior female leaders at Fast Company on the business side as well as on the editorial side. And I actually remember going to visit my predecessor back in 2014. We just had an informal meeting in his office. And he had specifically told me in that meeting that he was working on at the time one of the big um, lists that Fast Company produces. I believe it was the most creative people in business list. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he said, if that list comes back and it's not 
half women, I send it back to the editors. Mm -hmm. And so I was stepping into an environment with a really progressive editor-in-chief who had cultivated a really great team of women editors and had positioned the magazine as very inclusive. Mm -hmm. So for me, coming into that environment felt like a very comfortable place and a place where I wouldn't have to work really hard to bring a set of values around inclusivity to Fast Company. I, I definitely wanted to put my own mark on things. There were certain kinds of stories that I wanted to do. I wanted to broaden the lens a little bit of what it means to be innovative. Innovation is really the heart of what Fast Company writes about. And, um, you know, I also came in at a time when uh, perceptions of big tech were really starting to change. And so a lot of the coverage that had been Fast Company's hallmark and frankly, all of business journalism's hallmarks mm-hmm. for the preceding sort of, call it five to eight years, suddenly didn't feel quite on key. And mm-hmm. so I was coming in at a time when, frankly, the news cycle was changing, and that was an opportunity as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that whenever, uh, in many ways, I, I think we both know Eve Rodsky, and she always tells me that, you know, whenever a, a male can, you know, kind of pave the way for us or sit on the same side of the table as us, it really helps us to get change moving in a faster direction. So that's awesome that it was already cultivated in the community and in the culture at Fast Company. Um, So you were able to come in and kind of start, you know, start hit the ground running with being able to bring your mark to the company. That's really, that's really great to know. And I know I read the the article about when he was kind of transferring things over to you. And you can just tell in that, that he was, you know, already a very inclusive person. So that's awesome. So why don't you talk a little bit? I know you came from Vanity Fair to Fast Company, kind of very different magazines. So what it was kind of the difference of working at Vanity Fair and then coming into working for Fast Company and focusing on tech instead? Well, Vanity Fair, even as I was leaving and the company, Condé Nast, the parent company, had gone through quite a few cuts and was definitely um, trying to run a little bit more of a lean operation. It's still not lean compared to a place like Fast Company. We are really roll up your sleeves. Everybody dives in. Um, I share an assistant with a couple of people. Um, I, I joke that, you know, back when we were in the office, we took out our own garbage right? We had to kind of separate our recycling from our garbage. And, you know, every day before I left the office, I picked up my little plastic bag and dumped it out into the the, the shared bin and then brought it back to my office. You know, you would never see an editor-in-chief at a a magazine like Vanity Fair taking out their own trash. And I say that not to sound like, woe is me, but just to sort of underscore how different the organizations are. Mm So Fast Company is a very scrappy place, and that in many ways suits my management style. Uh, I would say that I tend to manage a little bit like the player coach model. Um, I like to roll up my sleeves and feel like I'm intimately involved in the content, whether that means occasionally writing up a small bio for one of our lists or writing the introduction to one of our packages. 
partly because it helps me feel like I'm really understanding the material. I read everything that goes into the magazine and I try to read everything that goes onto our website. But when you're um, actually a writer and participant in the project, I think you look at the material a little bit differently. So it really helps me as both an editor and as a writer. Uh, I think another big difference is that, um, you know, Fast Company has really the, 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 the digital as well as the live journalism, as well as the print journalism, they're all in some ways um, equal parts of the stool. Mm-hmm. At a publication like Vanity Fair, at the time I left, was still heavily focused on the print product. And so for me to come into an environment like that, uh, Fast Company has been great because I really, I'd spent most of my career in print and, and really had through the years at my years at Fortune and at Vanity Fair cultivated live journalism. But Fast Company has really given me a chance to understand and become a better digital journalist mm-hmm. and editor. So those are some differences. I think the one thing that people don't perhaps fully appreciate is um, some of the similarities. Um, when I left Vanity Fair and today, this day, the publication does a lot of business journalism. Some of the contributors at Vanity Fair were people that I had worked with over the years at Fortune magazine. Um, mm-hmm. People like Bethany McLean, uh, for a long mm-hmm. time, Sarah Ellison, who was a Wall Street Journal writer, was a contributor there, a guy named Bill Cohan. So there were all of these great business journalists who were contributing to Vanity Fair. And at the same time, um, at Fast Company, we are very um, well read in Hollywood and media and entertainment circles. And mm-hmm. so the relationships that I built at Vanity Fair have really helped me as I've moved over to Fast Company, where you'll see that we'll have a Chance the Rapper on the cover or a Janelle Monet. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all media entertainment folks that yeah. I think uh, learning how to relate to that world was something that I gained from my time at, at, at Vanity Fair. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that especially so much in tech, I mean, even for many years now, has overlapped so much with the media industry. And it it definitely will continue to do that, I'm sure, um, as time goes on. So I'm sure that is very valuable for you as the chief editor to have that, those connections, because you have to have that if you want to be able to bring in those people and bring them to the table. Um, I think that's really important. Plus, it gets more I'm sure more people reading Fast Company by having them, you know, on on the front cover, which kind of leads us to our next uh, our next question about uh, major uh, front covers and ones that you've had since being there. Um, I know one that I really loved and one that we have sitting in our office is Arlen Hamilton's um, Fast Company. I love Arlen. I first learned about her when I was in Founder Gym Accelerator and have met her a few times at different events. Um, And she's one of my favorite people. So being able to see her represented in a major, you know, publication was huge, especially for underrepresented founders and uh, underrepresented VCs. So kind of what, uh, what have you brought into Fast Company with making sure that there is, you know, more representation of other people on those covers? Yeah, I think that Fast Company, since its inception 25 years ago, 
has always positioned itself as a publication about the future of business. Mm. We're not a chronicler of the business establishment. Um, we're not a chronicle of you know, the, the, the biggest corporations in the world. We really want to highlight where business is going. And if you look simply at the trends in business, you look at the changes in the demographics of the consumers, not just in America, but worldwide, you look at the values and the mores of the youngest millennials and now Generation Z, and they are definitely interested and eager in seeing what business will look like, not today, but 10 or 15 years from now or 25 years from now. And we firmly believe that based on everything we're seeing um, from the people who are starting businesses and the younger people who are coming into the business world, the business world looks really different. And, um, you know, again, I grew up working at the Wall Street Journal and Fortune, and those are publications that I respect and they're my daily reading um, to this day. But the kinds of executives I wrote about in my years as a cub reporter and as an early um, writer and editor in magazines, you know, frankly, those are not people who our readers want to necessarily hear from or see on the cover of the magazine. They're interested in how those companies are changing and adapting and, and they want to see how the um, largest corporations in the world are trying to be more socially responsive and more um, employee first. But those are not the long narratives they want to read. They want to read narratives about innovators and people who see the world differently. And those are, you know, more often than not, people like Arlen Hamilton. Yep, for sure. It's so true. And it's funny. I Speaking of just like news and other different sources and what people read, um, we got featured in the Wall Street Journal at the beginning of COVID because of me and my husband both working from home. So they did a piece on it. And um, it was funny because I got so many different like LinkedIn messages from people and stuff like that. But like an older generation, like none of the people that are younger than me even knew that they're like, oh, really? You're in the world. OK, great. You know, but but then, you know, you're on other news stations or like somebody, an influencer shares you out and then you start hearing from that that different generation. So it's, it's interesting um, how that has changed. But I really like Fast Company because of that innovation standpoint of being able to kind of really see what is coming down the line, what innovators are out there, what, you know, new ideas that are coming. That's why we've always subscribed to it and pay attention because um, I want to see what's coming in the future. What are those things coming down the line? So I think that's a really important thing, especially for anybody listening to this episode today is that you want to make sure that you're seeking out what's coming, especially if you're an entrepreneur. You want to know what's down the line because your company can pivot and change as time goes on. And I know many people are pivoting and changing right now with COVID. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how you run this major publication as a mom. How do you do that as a mom? I know that many people are probably wondering that, and I love hearing different people's tips and tricks. I know that there is no balance. Let's be real. There's no balance, but how, um, what are some things that you've learned uh, by doing, running this major publication and being a mom? 
Yeah, I, thank you for that question. I'm very fortunate, um, especially in this environment where everybody's balancing school and work and uh, childcare. Uh, both of my daughters are now in high school. So it makes it a little bit easier on the school front. They are pretty self-sufficient in terms of getting online and getting to class and mm-hmm. for the most part, getting their homework done. Um, <laughs> so it, it does help that I'm at a different stage in my professional and personal life. But I think back to my early days as an editor and the parent of toddlers and then elementary school aged kids. And for me, the thing that I learned very early on was to set a boundary in terms of when I would leave the office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as soon as I had, before I had kids, I was the person who you might find at my desk at seven o'clock at night or at 10 o'clock at night. And because um, I would sometimes have trouble with deadlines as a writer, you might see me there at five in the morning because I didn't really make it home the <laughs> night before. Uh, after I became a parent and, and then I added a commute to parenting, I was pretty much out the door by 5.40 or 5.45 every night. And I just made it my pattern. People knew that they wouldn't find me at my desk after 5.45 and that if they needed me, they could certainly find me after my kids were in bed. And very often, like a lot of the people on this uh, who are listening, I, I would fire up the computer after both kids had uh, had, had had their stories and were mm-hmm. tucked in, um, and would work as long, late as I needed to. But really, setting that limit and that sort of boundary from the first pregnancy, first maternity leave I came from, mm-hmm. uh, I think was really important to my position in my workplace and my position as a leader. And I hope it gave other working parents, men and women, permission to feel like they could leave the office when they needed to. So that Mm -hmm. was something that, you know, uh, at the time I wasn't hyper-conscious of the message I was sending. I was just trying to get home to relieve the babysitter. But it, it, over time, it became clear that you know, it it had symbolic value as well as practical value. Yeah, for sure. I think constantly we have to lead by example, and that's probably the best thing that you can do. I know I've had lots of conversations with people about this, that um, my husband, when he was working at Microsoft, not many people took their full paternal leave, but now he works at Twitter and his whole team does like his boss just got back from his five month paternal leave and two years ago, took it for five months before that. And everybody like high up takes it as well. And it really shows in the culture at Twitter and um, at least in, in the teams that he has been on. And so that's been impactful for our whole family because he, he can have more of flexibility and it helps everybody. So I think that just modeling it is the, the best thing people can do. So thank you for doing that. And I'm sure that plenty of people that have worked on teams with you um, have looked to that as just a way to go, okay, I can set these boundaries too. And I think that's the most important thing. And everybody operates differently, but knowing that is really important. So thank you for setting that example. So what are, I love when I'm ever, I'm talking to writers or journalists, but what are um, your like top three? I'm sure it's hard to pick your top one, but what are your top three articles that you've kind of had a hand in over the years? 
Um, that's a great question. Um, I'll start uh, with the most recent and then work my way backward. Um, and this was a package of stories rather than an article, but our Fast Company's November 2019 issue um, had a, a special package on what we were calling the new capitalism. And it was really a look not just at you know, the business roundtable and large organizations coming out with a statement of purpose, but we looked at companies and individuals that were really trying to make a difference in creating a more inclusive capitalism. And you know, we're a business magazine. We're, we're not pretending that we don't um, honor or respect what capitalism has done for our economy and many other economies around the world. Right. But it's clear that if capitalism isn't working for everybody, it's not working. And pre-COVID-19 in particular, um, we were examining the inequities that we were seeing um, and the sort of, you know, the, the, the shifting sands that we were starting to see among corporations. Uh, clearly, this crisis has only exacerbated, um, I think, real inequities in the way workers are treated, in the ways that, um, you know, companies are able to access capital. We've just seen a whole host of, of challenges in the global economy and in the United States economy in particular sort of surface as a result of, of everything we're going to through. And, you know, ultimately, my hope is that we'll come out on the other side with greater uh, compassion and sympathy for um, for, for the business, businesses that have really struggled during this period of time, but also the workers who've really struggled. Mm -hmm. But that aside, you know, that issue was really important to me because it was, you know, you hear this from journalists all the time, it was show, not tell. We were mm -hmm. showing companies that really had figured out a different way of doing things that was mm -hmm. more inclusive. And by the way, actually benefited workers and shareholders and, yeah. um, and owners. So that was one I was really proud of. And we had um, Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder and of, uh, of Patagonia on the mm -hmm. cover. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because we do pride ourselves on having sort of young innovators on the cover, but um, it was so interesting to see the response from the entrepreneurial community to mm -hmm. seeing Yvonne on, on the cover of Fast Company, because he really is, and I know this is sort of a silly term, but he really is the OG, like, for people who care, he really about. is <laughs> really. I mean, like I, I love that was a wonderful issue, and also, I mean, I just love Patagonia, such a good, <laughs> such a good company, and I feel like any entrepreneur needs to know Patagonia and needs to know what he has put out into the world because it's just it's magical. So that needs to be shared. So I appreciated that that yeah. issue as well. A lot of people I think did. So definitely yeah. the OG. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was one I was really proud of. And then, um, you know, in my own career, um, I did a story when I was an editor and writer at Fortune that was the profile of a gentleman named Dominic Orr. And he was a founder um, and executive in enterprise software and enterprise technology, not a household name, but he was going through a real um, sort of emotional and personal journey and let me in. And I spent, you know, probably a couple of months over, you know, a couple of weeks over a period of several months 
with him and his family. And it was really a portrait of a hard-driven CEO who realized that he was sacrificing his family and his family's well-being mm-hmm. in pursuit of, you know, sort of his uh, excellence and, and his workaholic ways. And, mm-hmm. and for an executive operating at that level to be so candid and so forthcoming about the the negative impacts of our sort of go-go culture was really amazing. And, uh, you know, he had a a life coach and a personal coach and, and, and that individual talked to me and, and it was, um, it was just a meaningful story because it was, uh, it, it cast light on, I think the, the values of Silicon Valley and the values of, of business um, that are not necessarily so virtuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I give my editors at fortune a lot of credit for putting that story on the cover yeah. because it's a little bit unusual and, um, a, a bit, um, especially at the time, I think it felt a little bit, um, you know, people would probably say woo woo, but it was, uh, it, 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 it's, it, to this day, I, I've gone back and read it a few times and it really resonates. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was another story I was really proud of. And then, um, you know, another piece I did, um, when I was at fortune that I'm really proud of as a writer was, um, a, a piece that looked at, you know, this was a cu- kind of classic business story, but really looked at the rise and fall of the old AT&T. I was a telecom reporter mm-hmm. for most of my career. And, you know, really um, what, what was so important to me about that story was that, you know, it, it wasn't about the mergers and the acquisitions and the day-to-day sort of churn of the business news, but it was it was the first time for me that I did a classic magazine story where you, mm-hmm. you know, were able to look back at the history of a company and the, the challenges that um, its structure and its, um, it, 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 its culture sort of created for itself. So mm-hmm. um, after I had spent much of my career as, as a newspaper journalist, it was the first time I wrote a story that felt like a real magazine story. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. me, opened up the possibility for what um, a magazine could could still do for storytelling. And, you know, I'm lucky because Fast Company is one of the few places where you can still read a, a you know, a, a 3,000, 4,000 word story. Um, there's, there's a handful of places where, where we still, we still have that. And uh, I'm proud to be at a place where, uh, proud to be at one of them. Yes. Well, you just kind of brought this up and I love hearing especially from the writer's perspective of what they wrote and put out into the world. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm, I'm going to go find that Dominic or um, article in fortune. Cause that just, sound, uh, yeah, I feel like it's so important when we can point out the, the downfalls of what's going on in business so we can just fix it and try to, you know, do our best as CEOs and even, you know, just as employees in different companies that we can actually show up and try to make a difference. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. So you really take this human centered approach to your work. It's, it's obvious through what you've written and, um, through how you're leading a fast company, but how does this really like manifest into fast company, but also how you lead a team by taking that human centered approach? Yeah, it's funny because, um, I didn't really quite honestly know that much about the world of design before I joined fast company and had to get an education pretty quickly because, design is, you know, at the heart and the core of, of Fast Company mm-hmm. and, you know, continues to be 
one of, if not its big hallmark as a business publication. No, no other mainstream business publication covers design quite the way Fast Company does. And, and one of the things I learned early on in my education about design is how much of design thinking is really human-centered thinking. It's, it's putting the human first. So for me, um, it, it was a nice parallel to the way I try to think about our organization. Um, we are a relatively small group of people. We, as I like to say, punch above our weight. You wouldn't really know just how small we are um, by the volume of work we do and the quality of work we do. Um, but that relatively small size enables me to be uh, pretty hands-on and pretty um, connected, I'd like to think, to, to the team. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just showing up for our weekly team meetings and being accessible and, you know, again, pre-COVID when we were all in the office, really trying to have an open door policy and encouraging people at all levels to come in and visit me. And, you know, we have, uh, when we were in the office, we have glass offices. And so, you know, if you walked by my office at any given time, you know, you would be as likely to see an assistant in there mm -hmm. having a chat as you would be to see my CEO who you know, would pop by from time to time as well. So I think it's a lot about just trying to be um, accessible. That's a little harder now, but still yeah. trying. And then um, it's little things. Um, you know, I've worked at organizations where the top editor was not in, this is a silly example, but in Slack. You know, mm -hmm. um, the a lot of editors um, and some of this might have been generational too. Just they they would only communicate via you know sort of email or phone calls, more traditional. And and in our ours is a very Slack driven culture. So mm -hmm. you know I really try to you know I, one thing I've done is there are certain channels that I have not joined. I think mm -hmm. there are some channels that are really meant to be like you know for staff to sort of share sort of random and mm -hmm. fun and, you know, I think even probably have a little bit of a, of, of complaint. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I've by design not peered yeah. into those channels. We have a hairbrush microphone channel. I'm not on there. That's <laughs> if people want to use that to, to, to be them, that is, that yes. is their safe space. Yes. But for all of the work um, channels, I'm, I'm, I'm on Slack all the time and I'm popping in mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, suggesting ideas, but I'm also sort of, you know, trying to offer kudos and trying mm -hmm. to, um, you know, crack a joke when it's appropriate. I'm the yeah. least funny person on my staff. <laughs> I have a very funny staff. So I, I crack jokes very rarely because it's like mom humor. But, um, <laughs> but when it's appropriate, I try to sort of, you know, just let people know, hey, I'm here. Um, yeah. And the other thing I try to do, because, you know, most times I am not the expert on something. Most times my section editors know way better than I do. So when I pass something along, I always try to, you know, with a few exceptions of something mm -hmm. that, you know, I feel is really, really, really a must do. I usually yeah. try to say, like, no obligation. Like, mm -hmm. please have a look. Let me know if you think there's something here, but if you guys feel like this is not our lane, mm -hmm. 
feel free to discard. Um, yeah. You know, just let me know one way or the other, mm-hmm. or let the person know that we're we're going to pass. But I, I think that that approach hopefully reinforces that um, I'm here as a resource, but I also trust the experts to do mm-hmm. their jobs. Yeah. No, I love that approach. I, I think especially to have good employees um, continue to show up with those creative ideas, especially when you're in a, a more creative space, you have to you know, give them that leeway too, to know that they can come and bring those ideas um, and have the uh, kind of the authority to do that in many ways, um, but know that you're there to support them. I think that's great. Um, so three questions I kind of ask at the end for everybody is what is one piece of advice you would give um, younger women in their careers or mothers, younger mothers in their careers? I think this will probably be a little contrarian, but I would say aim higher. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people would say, don't stress yourself out. Don't, um, you know, don't, don't let ambition overtake you. But when I think back to early in my career, I feel like I probably could have aimed a little higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I am so on the same page with you. I just <laughs> talked last week at our summit about dreaming bigger for, for moms, especially because a lot of times once we have kids, we, we kind of pigeonhole ourselves um, and kind of put a hold on things or don't go as, as all in as we, we could. Um, and there's just ways that we can get more support to do it and keep going and aiming higher. So I love that. Yeah, and some yes. of it's a mindset, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I understand that, um, I, believe me, and I have been so lucky to have supportive spouse, mm-hmm. great childcare, easygoing kids. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know that it, it, it I, I, I do know how lucky I have been. Um, that said, I think even if you are in a position where you need to, hit pause, that doesn't mean that you should hit pause on the caliber and the um, ambition of your dream. Yes, yes, for sure. Oh, so well said. I love that. Um, Are there any assumptions about mothers that you would like to change? Um, I'm always reluctant to make generalizations about mothers because that always can get you in trouble. (laughs) But I think that I would like to see people understand that motherhood is not necessarily our MO as bosses and professionals either. You can be a maternal or um, caring boss but that doesn't mean I'm your mom right? right. at work. I yeah. can bring my whole self to work. I can bring the qualities that I think make me unique. And some of those qualities mm-hmm. do come from my status as a parent, yeah. but um, I'm not the work mom. I'm the editor. Yep. Yep. That you can still be the boss and show up in that, um, but you also can bring the good sides of the good things from motherhood um, to help you be a better boss. Yes. I love that. 
Um, so how are you, last question, how are you making waves of momentum in 2020? Um, I think that some of it is trying to make a virtue of being virtual. Um, I, we have a lot of great things that we do as a publication. Um, you know, you just mentioned your summit. We do our annual innovation festival. Uh, this year, the innovation festival will be virtual. There's a possibility we may do a small number of very small in-person things, but for the most part, it will be a, a virtual summit. Mm-hmm. And rather than using that as a sort of making it feel like it's second best to what we have done spectacularly in a live environment, mm-hmm. I, I'm charging our organization with trying to find a way to say this festival probably needed a bit of a refresh and some reinvention anyway. Let's, let's do what fast company espouses. Let's innovate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I love that. And as someone who just did a virtual summit, they are honestly wonderful. And I, I had a lot of people wondering, would it be as good? You know, would you get as much out of it? But we, it's, it's still reverberating, you know, afterwards, there's still ripple effects this week. And I'm sure there will continue to be, I think it's all the mindset of going into it and really kind of getting creative about how you're going to make it work. We did a discord channel. um, So using a gaming platform with discord uh, to communicate. And it's so, was so different for our moms because like none of our moms were on it unless they we're gamers. <laughs> and so it, it's been interesting to see, but you know, we just were like, we're going to try this out and it's worked really good for people to communicate while the summit was going on and then afterwards as well. So sometimes you just have to use those innovative things from technology to, to, to help you along. But uh, I love that. I'm excited for, I hope that um, even more people will attend the innovation summit too. I think this is kind of the cool thing about um, this time is that people that maybe wouldn't get to attend certain events are going to be able to because they can show up um, virtually. So that's really cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Stephanie. This was wonderful. I'm a big fan of Fast Company. Um, I have been reading it for years and I feel like it, it so much stays true to its mission of sharing about the innovation that's happening um, and really helps to inspire me too. So thank you for for leading a wonderful team and keeping uh, that going. Thank you. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Alibi Radio. Please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe to our podcast so you do not miss any episodes. Leave us a review and we'll read it live on the next episode. You can also listen to us on Spotify and Google Play. Just make sure to follow us so you can get the updates. For more information on what we provide at Alibi and how we can support you as a business owner and in your life, head over to Alibi.com. A-L-L-O-B-E-E.com. Thank you and have a great week.